You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us turn to the Word of our God together. We have three scripture readings. The first one is taken from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 28. We have been working our way slowly through a very short catechism answer, Lord's Day 20. And today we're going to look at the gift of tongues as mentioned in the early church. The first first scripture reading is from Isaiah 28, verses 11 to 13. Very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people to whom he said, This is the resting place, let the weary rest, and this is the place of repose, but they would not listen. So then the word of the Lord to them will become, Do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there, so that they will go and fall backward, be injured and snared and captured. And we turn to the book of Acts, chapter 19, the verses 1 to 7. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. And finally, we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning at verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as the flute or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes. Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then... I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying. I am a foreigner to the speaker, and he is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, how can 
one who finds himself among those who do not understand, say amen to your thanksgiving, since he doesn't know what you are saying. You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. I proclaim to you this afternoon, then, the word of our God as we summarize and confess that together in Lord's Day 20. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, he is together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. Secondly, he has also given to me to make me by true faith share in Christ and all his benefits to comfort me and to remain with me forever. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, we have just a moment ago witnessed together another baptism. And this means that we have seen the sign and the seal of God's covenant administered to a child of believing parents who are members of this congregation. In other words, you can say that hereby God has staked his claim to the life of Joseph Kevin Lionhorst. And God has made that very visible to all of us. And sometimes people ask me why I use so much water. Well, it's supposed to be a visible sign and seal. And by that visible sign and seal, you're reminded of what it is that God conveys to his children. But then, beloved, if there is water baptism, there is also another baptism mentioned in the Holy Scriptures. It's referred to in Matthew 3, verse 11, where John the Baptist predicts that when Jesus Christ comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it comes back in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, where our Savior promises his disciples that you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Also, you can find a reference to it in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. So what does this mean? Does this mean that the Bible teaches that there are two distinct and different baptisms? And that all Christians must experience both? There are those of Pentecostal persuasion who would say yes. First, they claim that you need to undergo a water baptism to mark your conversion. And then you need to pray earnestly that God will give you another baptism. A fuller, more distinctive An additional baptism called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And furthermore, these people hold that God has also supplied something to prove that that second baptism has really and truly occurred. And what is that something? What is that proof? It is the ability to speak in tongues. Once a believer begins to speak the special language of the Holy Spirit, he or she has arrived at the pinnacle of their spiritual development. In other words, the ability to speak in tongues 
As described in 1 Corinthians 14, we are told is the proof that you have experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, where does that leave us this afternoon? Have we missed the boat on something, theologically speaking? Have we been reading the Bible wrong? Why do we not teach and stress the doctrine of two baptisms and the vital necessity of being able to speak in tongues? Well, beloved, as you can note, we're back to controversy again. Last time we dealt with the Holy Spirit and controversy in connection with miracles. Todd Bentley and Benny Hinn and all the rest of them. Well, this time we're going to consider the Spirit in relation to the tongues controversy. And therefore, I'd like to preach to you this afternoon on the following theme, the spirit in controversy. What about tongues? We shall see that tongues are a sign of confirmation, a sign of inclusion, a sign of curse, and a sign of blessing. Well, beloved, the first thing that we can say about tongues is that they are a sign of confirmation. And what do I mean by that, and what is it that they confirm? Well, if you go back, for example, to John 14, John 16, Acts chapter 1. In John 14, the Lord Jesus speaks about the coming of that other counselor who's going to remain with his followers forever. And in John 16, he once again refers to that same counselor, and there he calls him the Spirit of Truth. And then in Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells his disciples to wait for the gift that my Father has promised, adding you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and stating you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So, beloved, the Spirit is coming. But how does the church know that he has come? What are the signs of his coming? Well, beloved, first, there is sound. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. The second, there is sight. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. And third, there is speech. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Obviously, then, you can say that Pentecost is about sound, sight, and speech. Ears, eyes, and mouths are all active and involved. But still of all three, it has to be said that speech and mouth in the form of tongues supply probably the clearest confirmation that the promise of the Lord has really been fulfilled. You might say the tongues are the unique proof of Pentecost. 
The ability to speak in unlearned languages is the most startling indication that the Spirit has come as promised. Tongues testify to the fact that the age of the Spirit has dawned. Yes, and they do so not just in Acts chapter 2, beloved. Turn to Acts 8, where you can read what happened in Samaria. There two tongues are poured out in order to show to the church that Pentecost has arrived. And you can turn to Acts 10, where you meet the same thing with respect to Cornelius, his relatives and close friends. You can turn also, as we have read, to Acts 19, those disciples in Ephesus who were totally ignorant. Imagine that about the Holy Spirit. They too speak in tongues and receive the proof of his coming. Repeatedly then, beloved, the book of Acts reveals that the news of Pentecost is not allowed to remain unknown or doubtful. The news of this great, unique, outstanding, redemptive event is to be experienced everywhere. And to that end, the Holy Spirit uses tongues or the gift of unlearned languages time and time again to testify to the fact that indeed he has been poured out of the church of Christ. Tongues, you can say, are a sign that confirm the Spirit's coming. But do they also, you might ask yourself, confirm other things? For example, do tongues also confirm that you have now received your second baptism, your Holy Spirit baptism? Do tongues also confirm that really the church of Jesus Christ is made up of two kinds or classes of members? Those who have only received water baptism and those who have received both water and spirit baptism. Do they confirm that there are these two types of believers or that coming to faith is a two-staged process? Well, beloved, a careful look at scriptures would dispute this. Take, for example, that well-known account again in Acts chapter 2. What is one of the hallworks? What is one of the noteworthy facets about the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? It is surely the fact that he comes to all the believers. The universality of his coming is stressed. You know, after it happens, the Apostle Peter stands up and he quotes the minor prophet Joel. I will pour out my spirit, Joel said, and Peter quotes upon all flesh. And then he proceeds to list sons and daughters, old men, young men, servants, men and women. 
In other words, Joel and Peter are saying, here is the fulfillment of the wish of Moses. I wish that all of the Lord's people were prophets. You see, Pentecost is not an exclusive event. It's not just a blessing for some believers. The scripture says the Spirit came to all of them, to every penitent believer, to every forgiven sinner, to every Christ follower. In short, the Spirit doesn't confirm a minority in the church. The Spirit doesn't only come to an elite or a select few. Now all believers receive the Holy Spirit. And as for baptism, beloved, there is only one baptism. One true, complete baptism. I know scripture speaks also about the baptism of John, which is a baptism of repentance. But maybe you recall the words of the Nicene Creed. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And what you saw here this afternoon, a moment ago, is that one baptism being administered. And it's a baptism that comes with the promises of the triune God to Joseph Kevin Lionhorst. And it's a baptism that, among other things, assures him that the Holy Spirit will dwell in him, imparting, cleansing, renewing, and preparing him and all the children of God for the great assembly of God's elect in life eternal. It's a baptism calling and obligating us and him and our children to live a life of faith, love, obedience, and daily dependence on the triune God. And so, beloved, the coming of tongues therefore acts as a sign of the confirmation The Pentecost has come. The Spirit has arrived in the church of Jesus Christ in full force. And it does not act as a sign of either special believers or a second baptism. Then, beloved, if tongues testify to the coming of the Holy Spirit, they also testify to something else. If you ask to what else, well, you can use the term inclusion. Look again at those various passages mentioned in the book of Acts, and what do you see? In in Acts 2, you see, as we mentioned a moment ago, that all the believers were filled with the Spirit. But if you go back to Acts 1, what you'll learn is that the group of believers was composed of 120 people, and all 120 people were of Jewish extraction. In other words, Pentecost comes initially to a church that is exclusively 
Jewish, made up of members of only one race. But notice, notice it doesn't stay with the Jews alone. Acts 8, there we read about Pentecost coming to the Samaritans. And and why did, you have to ask yourself the question, why did the Spirit come again to the Samaritans and enable them to speak in tongues? Well, it's not so difficult. It's to show that they too now belong to the church of Christ. You need to understand, if you were living at this point in time in history, in Jerusalem or thereabouts, you'd soon learn that everybody hates. Everybody who's Jewish hates Samaritans. Samaritans are good for nothing. Samaritans are inferior. Samaritans are racial half-breeds. Samaritans are the uncircumcised. But no longer. The Spirit comes to the Samaritans. And by the Spirit's coming, he legitimizes them and makes them equal members of the household of God. And you know, it doesn't stop there. Turn to Acts chapter 10. Again, that's a well-known passage. Cornelius. Why does the Spirit next come upon Cornelius, upon his relatives and his close friends? Why does he cause them as well to speak in tongues? Beloved, because they're a bunch of Gentiles. They're like us, outside the promises of the covenant. And now even the Gentiles are being ushered into the church of Jesus Christ. You see, first the Jews, then the half-breeds, and then the nobodies. And that's you and I. And in all of that, you begin to see so very clearly the march of the gospel. Our Savior had predicted shortly before his departure that not only would the Holy Spirit come upon his followers, but they would be turned into witnesses for Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And as the book of Acts unfolds, we see it happening. Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles... They're all being gathered in. Why, I might add, even the theologically challenged are being gathered in. Again, I mentioned, and I do so again, Acts 19. You know, in Ephesus, Paul meets some disciples who claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ, or of John the Baptist, I should say. They had received his baptism of repentance, but, you know, they're really in the dark. They're really very ignorant. They hadn't even heard about the Holy Spirit. 
And you know, if you haven't heard about the Holy Spirit, you're not even a Christian. And so what does Paul do? He evangelizes them. He teaches them. He baptizes them. He lays his hands on them. And then what? Then they as well receive the Holy Spirit. And the proof is in the speaking in tongues and in the prophesying. And isn't that a beautiful picture? A beautiful picture of the good shepherd working through the Apostle Paul to gather in not simply wayward sheep, but even confused sheep into the sheepfold of Christ. So, beloved, so it is that all of these passages in the book of Acts remind us that the coming That with the coming of Pentecost, the stage is set for the church of Christ to become truly Catholic or universal. Harvest among the nations is being launched. Yes, and today it continues. If you look around you in this church building on a typical Sunday, you can even see the evidence of the Spirit's work in this way. Together we are Canadians, but our ancestry is American, Dutch, Brazilian, Korean, Chinese, Liberian, people from Togo, the Sudan, from Trinidad, from Burma. And we're all together worshiping the Lord. You see the Catholicity of the church before your very eyes. You don't have to wait for the great day of days when the people of God from all the nations will be standing before the throne. You already get an inkling of it today. Spirit gathers and continues to gather multitudes from the nations. So, beloved, the arrival of tongues at Pentecost confirms that event, testifies to the inclusiveness of the church. Also something else, something that we usually overlook. And that is, tongues can signify curse. Now, that's rather shocking, isn't it? What does it mean? The key is to be found in 1 Corinthians 14, 21, where Paul quotes from Isaiah 28 to the effect that through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me. What's that all about? Well, turning to the Old Testament, if you do a little investigation, you'll find out the tongues are mentioned there three times. And every time the tongues, foreign tongues, are mentioned in the Old Testament, it's in a negative way and as a sign and indication of covenantal curse. 
You see, every time a foreign language is being heard extensively in the promised land, it means invariably that a foreign army has come, has conquered, taken over the land. And so Israel of old knew instinctively that whenever foreign languages dominate in our nation, there's trouble. And we are on the receiving end of God's anger and displeasure. That's the background. And now you come to the great day of Pentecost, Acts 2. And all of a sudden, what happens in Jerusalem? Jerusalem is flooded with all kinds of strange tongues and and languages. And what does it mean? Of course it means Pentecost. But for some, it also means judgment. It means that once again, the people of Israel are living at loggerheads with their covenant God. And of course, the evidence shows that they are doing precisely that. Have they not, have the Jews not rejected the gospel of the kingdom? Have they not crucified the Lord of glory? Are they not busy persecuting and scheming to persecute the church? You see, it's no accident that in such a time, the inhabitants of Jerusalem suddenly hear all sorts of foreign tongues being spoken among them. Yes, and then the sharp-witted and the biblically knowledgeable among them know That these tongues can only be one thing. A sign of God's displeasure and judgment on his ancient covenant people. And foreign languages overrun Israel. They will be a sign that God's judgment has come. Beloved, in Pentecostal literature, tongues only receive rave reviews. What's forgotten is there's another side to the story. To those who do not believe in the God of the covenant and in the great mediator of the covenant, tongues are a sign, not a blessing, but of curse. But on the other hand, for those who believe, they really are a sign of blessing. For why did the Spirit make tongues happen in the early church? If you listen to some people and some commentators, you would be inclined to say that it was to inflate the ego of certain believers. But that's not true at all. Look at Acts 2 again. 
Notice verse 11. There the crowd listens to all the different tongues being employed. And what do the people say? We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. You see, the tongues are for preaching. The tongues are for proclamation. The tongues are for promoting the wonders of God. Tongues are for broadcasting the mighty works of God in Jesus Christ to peoples everywhere. They're a blessing for the nations. And one might also add that tongues can be such a sign of blessing because, beloved, they are real. Languages. Most of those who are of Pentecostal persuasion do not agree with that. They are of the opinion that while the tongues that are mentioned repeatedly in Acts are real languages, the tongues that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 14 refer to some kind of unique Holy Spirit language, a language unlike any other. But you know, that's difficult, if not impossible, to prove. You know, it's hard to assert that while all of the incidents mentioned in the book of Acts are the same, the one incident in Paul's letter to the church of Corinth has to be different. And it's hard to assert that the Corinthian tongues are different when the Greek language and terminology used throughout is the same in Acts and in Corinthians. And it's hard to assert that while Acts speaks about tongues as being real, known, decipherable languages, 1 Corinthians has to do with some sort of mysterious, unknown, undecipherable, almost spirit. Language. Beloved blessings. And that's also why I read that part of 1 Corinthians 14. Blessings are derived from tongues only when they are understood. It's a great benefit when they can be understood either because foreigners recognize what is being said or when interpreters are used to explain and convey the words of God about Christ. And in addition, it also needs to be said that tongues represent a blessing because they are meant for public consumption and not for private use. And there again, you have a point of dispute. The same people who maintain that the Corinthian tongues are special and unknown also maintain that they are really only for private, personal use. But Paul disputes that as well. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, that the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And he says, too, that the Corinthians should try to excel in gifts that build up 
the church. And finally, he says that he would rather speak five intelligible words to others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Isn't that rather obvious? He'd rather speak in such a way that he's able to build up, to encourage, to comfort, to enlighten, to instruct the saints. And utter thousands of words of gibberish. The tongues that the Spirit grants are meant to promote the well-being of the life of the body and not the ego of individual believers. And in this way, too, they constitute a blessing. And finally, beloved, you can also say that tongues constitute a blessing because they pave the way for prophecy. If you read 1 Corinthians 14 in its entirety from start to finish, you cannot escape the conclusion that that Paul is of the opinion that while tongues have a place in the early church, the gift of prophecy has a greater more effective, and more lasting place. In the concluding words on this matter, the apostle says, My brothers, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. In other words, be really enthusiastic about prophesying, but don't worry too much about those who speak in tongues. Why not? Because the gift of tongues is temporary. It's a bridge to the coming of the full and complete written word of the Lord. And when that word arrives, it's cause for enthusiasm, for eagerness, for taking prophecy and expounding it. And you know, beloved, that kind of enthusiasm should also be found with us. I think it's true to say that we're naturally attracted to the spectacular, the mysterious, and the unusual, and tongues have a touch of all of those kind of things. But you know, the way forward in the Christian life, and the only way of blessing, has everything to do with sticking close to the Word of the Spirit, as well as reading, explaining, discussing, applying and modeling it to our lives. And I would hasten to add that that is also what the leaders of the Great Reformation did as well. And that's what church reformers have been doing throughout the ages. Men like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, Beza, Bullinger, and all the rest didn't speak in tongues. And they didn't feel themselves handicapped or hindered either. But rather they turned to the living, abiding Word of the Spirit. And they esteemed it 
And they embraced it. And they preached it. And taught it. And defended it. You know, in a forthcoming issue of Mission News that I happened to edit yesterday, Reverend Tahart in Papua New Guinea asks his students in their fledgling theological seminary, what does it mean to be reformed? They kind of looked at him with strange eyes and didn't really say much. Then he turned around and he said to them, well, what does it mean to be Roman Catholic? And instantly the answers came. The Mass, the priest, the Pope, Rome, Mary, you name it. So what does it mean to be reformed? Some would say it means the five points of Calvinism. Others would say it means an organ in the church. Still others would say, no, it means elders sitting up front here. Interesting, but not really on the mark, is it? You know what it means fundamentally to be reformed? It means to be people of prophecy. People of the book. People who confess that the word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto their path. That this word of God is inspired, inerrant, infallible. That it's our only rule of faith and life. Or as the Belgian Confession says so beautifully, it's for the foundation, regulation, and confirmation of our faith. What does it mean to be reformed? It means we are people of the book. My beloved, may the Holy Spirit, who has given this book to us and to our children, give to us the same dedication and commitment as the reformers had to the word of prophecy, to the word of the Lord our God, to the power of the Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.